0: You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com.
1: I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history?
2: It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former
1: U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara, and this week... Presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hey, uh, before we get going, quick word from our sponsor, Lynda.com. Linda is used by millions of people around the world and has over 3,000 courses on topics like web development, photography, visual design, and business, as well as software like Excel, WordPress, Photoshop, all taught by experts with new courses added every single week. So if you're looking to improve yourself this year, uh, whether it's setting new financial goals, finding a work and life balance, um, getting a new hobby going, asking your boss for a raise, lynda.com has a course for you. Special for our listeners, if you sign up today, you'll get a 10-day free trial. So you're going to go to lynda.com slash long form, sign up, you'll get unlimited access to every course on lynda.com, even on your iPhone and Android. Uh, some of the courses that kind of caught my eye as I was browsing through here uh, javascript for web developers i could definitely use that uh getting things done grammar fundamentals that one could be very useful i'm personally interested in learning logic so i could take a shot at editing this podcast myself putting jenna weiss berman out of the job so go to lynda.com slash long form challenge yourself to learn something new in 2015 here's the show
3: Hello and welcome to the Longform podcast. I am Evan Ratliff. I'm from Atavist. I'm joined by Max Linsky to my left, Aaron Lambert to my right. Long form.
0: I like how you're giving like a 3D spatial uh, understanding to our listeners. Yeah, I feel like like, cool. a, like a like a uh, football announcer. Yeah, we do know what's going on from left, le- left to right on your radio dial.
2: Yeah,
3: so people can really paint. A, we can a, paint a picture for them. We're all beautiful. <laughs> <laughs>
0: False. <laughs> who's on the uh, Who's on the show this week?
3: This week's uh, show is Josh Dean. Uh, I talked to Josh partly on the occasion of, uh, he's got a story coming for us, uh, actually it's out, uh, it's called The Life and Times of the Stopwatch Gang, a crazy group of armed robbers who operated in the early 1980s, robbed like hundreds of banks. So anyway, he did that piece for us, and so I sort of used it as, as an excuse to talk to him about... Uh, freelance life josh is one of the best freelancers that i know he writes for a bunch of magazines gq fast company all over the place makes a living at it everybody always wants to know like how do you make a living as a freelancer Josh Dean.
2: I am uh, never going to be mad at a bank heist story. Like, you, you, I will read all of them for the rest of time. What percentage of Atavist stories are bank heist stories at this point?
3: Uh, five, maybe just 5%. Maybe 5% 5 to 10%. I you
0: are going to come with the question of what, uh, what percentage of bank heists result in a feature article. <laughs> yeah. 90, yeah. 95%. One-to-one one on that one. We yeah. love a
3: good bank heist. Well, you, people should check it out. They should go buy it. It's on com. I'm sure it's great.
0: Let's talk about some sponsors. First one I want to talk about is Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, online store, anything that you have an idea that you want to build, you probably could build it with Squarespace. Uh, They feature an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Um, You're going to go to squarespace.com, put in offer code LONGFORM, you'll get 10% off your purchase and support the show. Uh, We have another sponsor. For, wow. uh, <laughs> that's that's the that's the horn sound I started developing last week. I thought that was the alarm. It's the, the alarm. Yeah. Wow. Uh, it's the alarm. The sponsor is not alarm grid though. What? Uh, no, no. But this is I'm like ringing the 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 sponsor alarm. It's like a, a like a it's like the top of a. You cop can see car. how you can you can see how I would be confused when the alarm was introduced with the sponsor alarm grid. That's true. That's true. It is like it is a it's a small nod to. Uh, The residual thanks to Alarm grid sponsorship (laughs) that they've now added the alarm into my vocabulary. Uh, Alarm Grid's really getting a freebie here.
2: I know, I know. It's hard to speak like the Lamer Sponsor language. I'm not (laughs) fluent. I need lessons. Uh, The sponsor I was referring to is Tiny Letter, which is a simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. And I I, uh, saw a thing this week, that maybe you guys have seen this before, but I saw multiple people on Twitter this week refer to just their tiny letter. The same way it would be like their Tumblr or their Twitter. It's just like, get yourself a fucking tiny letter.
0: Myself and the editor of this show, Jenna Weiss Berman, were on a panel last night. One of the guests on the panel, uh, Nicholas Kwa, who runs the tiny letter Hot Pod. Uh, I mean, you know, people getting on panels as a result of their uh to be fair that is a fantastic newsletter that's when you know you've made it panels (laughs) it's a a great uh it's a great example of like something that you like go and sign up for like a tiny letter right now could like could be your thing next
2: year evan you're a big like conference guy you're on the scene
3: uh yeah i've seen you on the scene the conference (laughs) scene i've seen you out there
0: hey it takes one to see one at a conference (laughs) here's evan with josh dean
2: All right, welcome to the podcast,
3: Josh Dean. You are currently in the midst of writing a story for The Atavist, uh, which I'm not editing directly, but like I have read and I have weighed in on in various ways. So I feel like we're like finely balanced because you control the destiny of our uh, actually getting our publication out. That is true. And we control the destiny of like your words being your own. That is true. So I feel like it's a fair. The scale is like tipping day to day. It's tipping one way or the other. <laughs> no one has a uh, has an inherent advantage in this situation. But I actually wanted to start with editing because I feel like you have followed a trajectory which is somewhat the inverse of the way a lot of writers end up, which is a lot of writers uh, freelance, like in their 20s maybe, and they can afford to like not make any money or anything. And then they get an editor job or someone works their way up the staff. And then you're sort of like a... Establish that, and you, whatever, have a family life, and then you're an editor, and that's a more stable job, and maybe it has health benefits. And you've, as far as I can tell, taken the reverse path of that, which <laughs> is that you were an editor with a stable job, and now you are a like mercenary freelance <laughs> writer. I threw out
1: a very good career with benefits <laughs> in order to sit
3: alone in a room and chase checks. That is true. And I have two kids. Uh, exactly, exactly. What I'm interested in. Why, why did you leave being an editor? You were an editor at Men's Journal. Well, that that's an easy answer. Okay. I got fired. Okay. And, <laughs> <laughs> Every editor at Men's Journal gets fired. Right. I,
1: well, yeah. Especially if you're the editor in chief. The higher up the masthead you get, the more likely you are to be fired. And if you're the editor in chief, you will definitely be fired. In the four year, I was there about four and a half years. I had four different editors in chief, or did I have five? Whatever. By the end. I was getting tired, and the person who took over at that time was obviously tired of me. I mean, we just didn't mesh. So, but I mean, I was bummed to get fired. Right? Anyone who gets fired is sad and shocked right away. And I think I went out that night. And you were got, not expecting to get fired. I wasn't expecting to get fired, though. I knew it wasn't going well. I was like essentially—I was deputy editor, but I was essentially the, the, the features editor, and none of my features were getting in the mag. Like my ideas were just not meshing with
3: the person who was editing at that uh, time. So, where did you, you said you went out? Went out that night and got
1: drunk and I talked about it and I just decided by the next morning that like it was actually a good thing because I wanted to write anyway, you know, and my time at Men's Journal was, I was a really pushy editor with the top editors above me and that i forced my will upon a lot of stories that I probably shouldn't have been able to write, you know, like. Editors get to write at a lot of magazines, but often you're not encouraged to do so. Yeah. I kind of was always raising my hand to write stories, because that's that's what I wanted to do. I mean, I came to New York to be a magazine writer, and like you said, you can become a struggling freelance writer in your 20s and, and live on couches and, and not make much money. But I kind of wanted benefits, and I wanted some stability, and I also thought that being an editor was a way to make connections in the industry, and that's exactly what happened. So I worked at a volatile place where... The editor was constantly getting fired. So I worked with a ton of people in Men's Journal who went off and populated the ecosystem of magazines. And then by the time I did get fired and I left, I decided the next day to not go back. I knew people everywhere. So I was like, I'll give this a try because this is what I want to do anyway. I want to write stories. So once I was over the shock of being fired eight hours later, by the next morning I was like, this is awesome. I'm going to try and make this work. And that was 10 years ago. I've. Never once tried to go back. I mean, you know, there's some been some things in the middle that have happened, like Play happened, and Mark Bryant, Play being the New York Times magazine, Sports magazine, right? Sports magazine that was Mark Bryant was hired to start that during the heyday of um, the Times Magazine division when T T appeared and they were printing money before the recession. There was a point at which the New York Times Magazine division was like printing money. T had appeared and there were like nine variants of T: Real Estate, Men's Style, Women's Style, Travel. <laughs>
3: Whatever. There were a million.
1: They're so like, let's start a
3: sports magazine. There's a real estate real key. estate key. It was like a separate real estate thing. Yeah.
1: So they hired Mark Bryant, who I knew from Men's journal and outside, and he asked me to help him start it. And ourselves with another editor started play. But so I was editing that as a quarterly thing that came out. Well, it's a quarterly, four times a year. It was like I was still a writer primarily, but four times a year I helped put out a magazine. That's as close as I've ever come to taking an office job since then. So basically, that meant that four times a year I went to the New York Times building, helped put together a magazine, sat in an office for about three weeks. But it wasn't
3: it wasn't the same as the as a pre, as that editing gig at was Not wasn't even like close. A, because sitting there taking pitches and doing doing the whole th- whole no. deal.
1: I mean, I was taking pitches throughout the year. I got to do. I mean, I edited that famous David Foster Wallace, Roger Federer story. I mean, some amazing things Mm. happened there. Like I got to work with some, I mean, you know, that'll be a career highlight for me, obviously. But after that month, I would go off and write again for two months. And, And like, that was the only way I could imagine working in an editing job. And that was okay. But I also, again, I wasn't, I was sad when it went away because I was really proud of it. I thought it was an amazing magazine that we did some, some of the best sports stories of the time, and you know some of the great stories that people remember. Yeah, what, the was the,
3: what was the story of that Federer story? I forgot that 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 you edited that story.
1: That story has a great backstory because we tried to assign it to John Sullivan. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, John. I think when he wrote his David Foster Wallace appreciation, which ran on GQ.com and not in the magazine, I think talked about this. So we tried to assign that to John Sullivan. Federer at that time was at the height of his powers, and we knew we had to do a Federer story. So you had
3: a concept that was like a major non-fiction writer, or I guess fiction and non-fiction writer goes and does a sort of spectacular portrait of this that's different than a normal Yeah, profile. like the story,
1: but also a little bit esoteric. like not, yeah. yeah, not like yeah, not just like a traditional profile. Of course, right. John, at that time, this was 2007 probably, wasn't quite the who the John Sullivan is today. His mm-hmm. His like He's a more well-rounded literary figure, I feel like, now. Then he was just kind of this great magazine But he was writer. your first choice. He, well, because I remember when I was at Men's Journal, whenever a ten, tennis story came up, people were like, let's get David Foster Wallace to write it. <laughs> and you would call his agent, and she would be Bonnie, and she would be like, he wrote like his tennis story for Esquire. you know, That was his thing and like this sounds kind of dicky to say but he was like
3: he's done his tennis story right he doesn't need to write another tennis story so I think he doesn't need to do he didn't need to do he didn't need to do any any magazine story it's It's just just like every magazine now including like magazines that are launching, like, digital magazines, they always say, like, we're going to get, you know, we get, like, Michael Lewis to do something. Like, everyone says yes. that. It's always, like, on some, I remember when I worked at Wired, it was, like, always some, on some board, whiteboard, where they'd written, like, dream writers, and it was always, like, Michael Lewis. It's like, Michael Lewis. Is going to say no. He's going to say no. Although he's- he did
1: write for us at play. But, again, <laughs> we were able to get some amazing people there for a variety of reasons, I think. But, but so, how did you get there? You... What what why John so Jeremiah Sullivan so didn't want to do it. John wanted to do it. I think we actually assigned it to him. He was going to go to England, and then Jim Nelson
3: stepped in and said no. Oh, the editor of GQ editor said GQ, he's, on, he's, he's ours or
1: whatever. Basically, yeah. He said he owes us too many stories, and I think we'd already gotten Fetter's alleged cooperation. Like the the thing, the plan was in motion. So John Jim puts the kibosh on John. John's very apologetic and nice about it. You know, and Mark is a very connected guy. You know, he edited outside during its heyday when it won three consecutive General Excellence Awards. Mark knows everybody. You know, his like John Krakauer comes over for marshmallows. You know, like he's he's really well <laughs> connected. So if anybody, I guess, could make the call to David at that time, so he he to his credit, I think called Bonnie, David's agent, and it just so happened that. David was obsessed with Federer, I think because he loved tennis, and Federer at that time had, was playing like a version of tennis that we'd never seen before, like perfect tennis, like interesting tennis, like his angles and his shot making and the mm-hmm. way he was hitting the ball. And I think, for whatever reason, she decided to ask him, and he said yes. And he had never been to Wimbledon, and we were offering him the chance to go to Wimbledon, so he said yes, and it worked out. You know, It turned into like one of the great sports stories of all time, and he there's this like perception of him in the public and i th- and i remember jonathan franzen kind of puncturing this a little bit when his when he died that he was this kind of like bumbling naive from the midwest and like franzen was always like he's way more calculating and confident than he ever let on but he really was kind of that guy like at least in my experience with that story we sent him to wimbledon He didn't have a credit card. He didn't have a cell phone. He, he, I'm sure, had traveled quite a bit, but kind of acted like a guy who'd never traveled before. So, we, uh, like, you know, our assistant at play was like charging his hotel rooms, and we got him, I think we got him like a burner phone. And, like, I'll never forget my my wife, who was then my girlfriend, it was like one of the first nights I'd ever spent at her apartment. And at like three o'clock in the morning, the phone rings. And I, like, I look at my phone. And it's like a plus 4-4. Four, four. I'm like, <laughs> oh,
3: I gotta take this. <laughs> it's, it was, the, it was, it's the DFW burner
1: calling. It was the DFW burner. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. He was calling me because... He couldn't figure out how to get on the media bus from the hotel to Wimbledon. <laughs> so he's calling his editor in New York City at 4 o'clock in the morning to, to like, I don't know if it was to like ask my for my help or just to tell me that, like, I don't know how to get on the media bus. I don't know how to... Like, maybe to say, like, I may not get to Wimbledon because, like, I don't know how to get there. And I don't even remember what I said. Probably, like, take a cab and expense it. Like, yeah. you, you kind of need to get... get there. You need to get to Wimbledon. So he became this like funny figure in our relationship so you know when when he died not that long after a year or two and and she was or was it three years whatever you know it was like i felt slightly personally connected to to him only in the sense that i'd edited this one story and we'd had interactions over the course of a month i mean obviously like all writers respected him greatly and thought he was like one of the best writers of of his era And, and he was wonderful to work with and funny and and The whole sort of like naive side of him was endlessly entertaining. I thought, you know.
3: I mean, he also notoriously like would fax, like fax or send these things saying like, "Don't, don't you dare change this." Not, not like that, but like funny. I I remember seeing funny things like that. Yeah,
1: I mean, kind of like that. He didn't. Yeah, because he didn't at that time. He didn't have email. He used his wife's email. Yeah, he would fax things in. It was like a less menacing version of that. Basically. If you're going to change anything, we need to talk about it was the kind of unspoken subtext of the conversation, and to the extent that that was like an eight or nine thousand word or was it eleven thousand words It was a long story and he would notice everything like, mm-hmm. I mean there were cases where I think I would like change like a semicolon to a comma or something and he would pick up on it like he was that attentive to his and kind of would dress me down like. If you change something, we need to discuss why you changed it. There are not many writers, if maybe any, now who could even would even have the gall to try that. But also, you know, would notice probably that on that level, an eleven thousand word story when someone changes their punctuation. And he also, you know, the other famous thing I don't want to spend the whole time talking about David Foster Wallace, but the, but the other famous episode from that whole story was that he, to his credit, and. I mean, most of us, I think, agree that the Oxford comma, the serial commas,
3: should be used everywhere. right? I've, i just had this conversation today. It's in the, out of its style forever.
1: I don't even know how that there is an anti movement, but the New York Times is in the anti serial comma. It's they don't. And he was a real stickler, so he argued it up the masthead to the like copy czar of the New York Times, and they made an ex- exception for his story. We we ran serial commas in David Foster Wallace's story. To my Knowledge that the first time, maybe they've changed the policy, but Mm. and I remember when he was making his case and is kind of like, oh, you know, I don't want to create a big stink, but I feel very, you know, this is like a very passionate issue for me, and uh, um, if I need to talk to like Bill Keller, you know, I'm happy to do that, and. (laughs) You know, and Mark, I think, went in, took it to the paper, and and I remember David telling me, he's like, I think if it matters, um, I'm on the board of the Oxford English Dictionary and the American Heritage Dictionary, so I think my credentials are like, I'm, <laughs> I'm like, I don't know that you need to argue your credentials <laughs> with me, but but that's impressive. <laughs> if anyone is in a position to take a stand on the Oxford comma, it's the guy on the board of the Oxford English Dictionary. So, so that's like that's like a peak editing experience. Yeah. But I, but so if all of my if if editing could have only been editing. David <laughs> Foster Wallace stories, then I think maybe I could have stayed with it. But what I always wanted to do was write, and even at play, I wrote
2: a bunch of stories, and Mark would probably tell you that I was annoying as hell. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to pause things for a second and tell you a little bit about two of our sponsors this week. Up first, HP Matter. HP Matter is a new digital magazine where the brightest minds in business share their perspectives on a technology-driven world. Uh, And even if you like me, are not one of, say, the brightest minds in business, you're still going to find tons of interesting stuff in HP Matter. Their latest issue, which just came out this week, is all about the future of telecommunications. They've got predictions for how we'll all be talking to each other in 2020. Uh, It's great interview with Facebook's head of mobile about the company's future in your pocket. Uh, And this awesome infographic, it really is uh, pretty cool, about the machines that will power all of this technological future of ours. Uh, So go check it out hpmatter.com, or click the link in the show notes for a list of some of the most interesting pieces from the new telecommunications issue. Thanks very much to HP Matter for sponsoring the show. It's uh, great to have them. Our second sponsor is our old friends at Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Uh, If you have previously tried to build a website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas, then you know that doing so is a huge pain in the ass. Uh, even if you know how to code, building a website is terribly time-consuming. Squarespace is here to make that process simple, easy, quick, exactly what you want building a website to be. They've got these beautiful templates. All you have to do is just click on one and go. Uh, All the design is responsive, so it looks great on any device. If you do hit a snag, you probably won't, but if you do, they've got 24-7 support via live chat and email. It really couldn't be any easier, and it's only 8 bucks a month, and if you sign up for a year, you get a free domain. Uh, So here's what you should do. My advice, if you would like to build a website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas, and you would like to avoid... Uh, murdering yourself in the process, go to squarespace.com and use the code longform at checkout. You'll get 10% off uh, and you'll be supporting the show, which would also be a nice thing for you to do. Uh, So thanks very much to Squarespace. Thanks to HP Matter. And let's get back to Josh and Evan.
3: You said you moved to New York. To like get into this business from from be where? a magazine writer. Where did that idea come from? I oh, want to be a magazine writer.
1: I went to a tiny liberal arts college in Ohio that no one's ever heard of called Wittenberg. But I had a really good experience there. There was no journalism, and I think at the time, like I, I was like my dad was a history professor, my mom had been an English professor, my you know, my brother was in business. I was thinking about law school. I was like one of those kids who's like I do well in school. I have no idea what I'm gonna do. Yeah, but. I took this writing exam as a junior that we all had to take—a writing proficiency test, where you had to sit down under controlled conditions and write an essay. I think we had 50 minutes, and I got a perfect score on it. And it was like the only perfect score that had been scored
3: in recent years on this test. Was it test to get into something? No, it's or just, just like-, like
1: testing juniors' writing proficiency. I think just to make sure, like, are we? We're a liberal arts school. Everyone who leaves here needs to be able to write and argue and think, and like this is one test of like people shouldn't be slipping through the cracks, so when they go out in the world, they need to be able to write briefs or arguments or stories. Um, If you believe in epiphanies, like, that was a tangible epiphany in my life where this thing happened, and I suddenly got all this praise, and, like, the editor of the – the university editor who published, like, the alumni paper and everything suddenly wanted me to work for him, and, like, the local newspaper was, like, offering me an internship, and it was – kind of like, oh, my God, I'm good at this thing that I didn't realize, but just it makes sense. Just
3: because the test, prior to the test, this was not a notion in your head? You just kind of no. like took this test and I they were all like, I loved to hey,
1: read, and my parents were writers. Well, my dad wrote a couple of books, and my mom was a poet, and I don't know, this sounds really naive, but like being a writer for a living didn't seem like an option. It's not like it was on the list of, when I was looking at like lawyer, doctor... <laughs> <laughs> Accountant stockbroker, like writer wasn't like one of those cards up there, yeah, and then suddenly it was, I was like, oh wait then and then i then I took the limited journalism classes that we had, and there were you know, there was a journalism teacher, there were five or six. I took the creative writing classes, I took screenwriting, everything I could take that was writing, and then the things I li- the thing I liked doing best was writing the longer. You know, for the student newspaper, the longer features, the profiles, the for the alumni magazine, and it just was very clear to me that there. Not only did I want to be a writer, but there was a kind of writing I wanted to do, which was longer stories, where I could spend more time learning about something I didn't know about. You know, it's and it's always been my favorite thing about this job is that you get get paid to obsess over some subject that either I'm interested in or I didn't realize I was interested in, and I get to learn about and. You know, you become kind of an expert in a million different things.
3: So how'd you get a job in Men's Journal coming from a college that I I literally can't remember. You said it a minute ago. Wittenberg.
1: Wittenberg. Yes. Oh, no. I mean, it wasn't like I went straight to Men's Journal. I had some shitty jobs. I think my first job was uh, um, I worked for a trade publication that like did forecasting about the fashion industry. So it was like... Sock sales will be up in the fall of 1997. I've always
3: known you to be very knowledgeable about where fashion is going. Well, there you go. That's socks. Uh, now especially. I understand. I'm
1: very fashion forward with my footwear. <laughs> um, so you kind of like worked yeah, through different, I mean, I had different to, then I went my publications. My first like consumer job, magazine job, was at a teen magazine called Twist. So actually, some of my first like national magazine stories were like. Britney Spears. I mean, you won't find these out there. And, you know, thankfully, this was like before the internet put things up there. Oh like, man! Like my first traveling jobs for journalism, like getting flown to L. A. which you know, it's like not to sound uh, I, you can't not sound like a jaded prick at this point. Like, but like at a certain point, that becomes part of the job. That's just what you do. You travel out to write stories. But yeah. I remember being so pumped to like go to L. A. and stay in a hotel in Santa Monica, and like I was interviewing Britney Spears, the Backstreet Boys, like. Sugar Ray. And they were published in a teen magazine. They were like 800 word features. Um, and then from there, I went to Details in its old incarnation, which was like at the peak of the Lad magazine explosion. Condé Nast tried to pivot Details into a Lad magazine. So I got hired there just as the last editor was like pivoting it into a Lad magazine where they were putting girls in the front. And then, like less than a year later, it folded.
3: And they brought it back later. That's a happy ending for that. Details for them for some reason,
1: and then I briefly went to another lad magazine stuff.
3: Oh, wow, that's deep in the lad magazine territory,
1: which was launched as like a brother to Maxim, And, and there was like kind of my like the next evolution of the teen magazine. So I was like going out to interview like vapid starlets. Again, for like an 800-word Q&A. But, you know, more of the exposure to the process of going out and interviewing people and traveling. Um, but yeah, I knew at the time, what I, I still always had that idea of what I wanted. This wasn't what I wanted to do. These were just like means to an end. And then
3: from there, I got a job at Men's Journal. You get fired. You realize, actually, this is kind of a good thing because I always wanted to be a writer anyway. Did you, just reading back through all of your, all of your pieces... I was trying to I always try to like sort out some theory of like how you approach your work and then see if it matches uh, what you actually think. Like you do a lot of stuff that's like cars, stuff that's like feels like it's very much like I know how to deliver this piece. I know how to get this in on time and exactly what you want and helps me make a living, Uh, although some of them are very fun. And then you also have like very serious pieces, and then you have pieces where like you get to have adventures and go all over the world. But the thing I'm worrying about is when you set out to be a writer, where you're just like, "All right, I'm just going to pitch stories all over the place." Like, did you have a plan?
1: No, I wish I wish I had like a roadmap, or I was more mercenary about it. What I knew is that I knew a lot of people because Men's Journal churned through so many editors, and there were a lot of people I could hit up for work. And there were certain subjects that people knew that I knew, which like for, yeah, cars is a good example. Or sports. Um, At Men's Journal, I'd edited the car column, among other things. So I learned something about cars. So I kind of knew that there were magazines that might find that knowledge useful and, like, didn't have a car person. So especially at that point, less so now, but uh, I was, like, looking at how can I sustain this model, right? unless you have a staff writer job or you're married to a very wealthy person or you're independently wealthy, like, it's not an easy way to make a living. It's a great way to make a living, but, you know, the ideal situation sometimes is to have, like, more mercenary work that pays for the work that you care about. Yeah. Now, and I think a lot of writers pretend to be precious about that or maybe they can afford to be precious about it or they're above doing, you know, once you have a staff writer job, like, I was never, and even now, like, you know, it's not that I won't do mercenary work. I still do, you know, but it's like, If it's easy, and they'll pay me money for it, and it's not embarrassing, you know, why would I say no to, like, yeah, some, you know, somebody wants me to go drive some car, it's like, does that seem beneath, you know, I I sort of reject the whole idea of something being beneath me. There are obviously some stories I wouldn't do or I have no interest in, but this job is fun and should be fun, and, like, I wouldn't turn something down that seems like a fun thing for me to do just because maybe the story that ends up at the end is not something that, like... 10,000 people are going to tweet about. I don't give a shit. You know, yeah. clearly I want to be respected. Like certain stories I care a lot about and I want people to read. I always tell my dad, he's like, I haven't seen any, have you written anything lately? I'm like,
3: yeah, I've written a <laughs> lot of stuff. That is the worst question for a freelance writer.
1: <laughs> what, are, what are you working on? What are you working
3: on? What are, I haven't seen your byline I, lately. We need to make money. And
1: <laughs> I, I work for myself from an office with no hours. I can take any days off that I want. But I also have a family and two kids. You know, I've I have a cabin in the Catskills. Like I have, I have a lifestyle that I have to maintain. And if, if 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 I looked at this job as like I'm only gonna write six thousand plus word features for these six magazines, I you know, well one, my kids would starve. You know, I would <laughs> I would like not be living in New York City. I would, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a math you have to put together to make this job work. And I, I think I I you know, you had. Um, Taffy with the complicated last name on. Professor Ackner. Yeah, I mean, and she was kind of, I think she was talking about this, too. You know, she's very prolific. Yeah. Right? And, and similarly, turn, like, there are, there are probably writers out there who will be like, oh, my God, you write for Cosmopolitan. And it's like, well, who fucking, ca-? yeah, who cares? Like, I mean, that's part of the ecosystem of magazines that pay us money, that still pay us a decent amount of money for our work. So you're crazy to not take that money when people ask you, you
3: know? yeah well it's interesting because this stuff gets it gets sort of like untethered from its publication like if someone were to read like the story you did i i really like that story you did about the flooding in the catskills from a few years ago which was like a very it was just like a uh tick basically on like people whose lives were destroyed by a sort of unexpected unexpected flash flood and kind of like what happened to them in those moments and afterwards and if someone read that story they would be like this guy must just write features like that for you know if you saw that that's kind of what you would assume and then you if you saw a piece that was just about i drove a ferrari around for a couple days on a track and here's what it's like they'd say this guy just writes stories like that and the mix of it is very interesting to me
1: that's what i love about like I don't want to say I've made a conscious effort not to specialize, but I kind of have made, you know, I've at least made a semi-conscious effort not to specialize. You know, I write like business stories, and I write stories for popular science about nuclear energy, and I write, yeah, I'll take go to Dubai and drive a Porsche around the desert. You know, it's like it's because it's interesting to me to not specialize, which is not to discredit people who specialize, because I think I'm probably there are certain stories that I'm not going to do as well as people who specialize, but. It's also helped sustain me in a way that if I were only writing about sports, for instance, there's certain magazines that wouldn't be assigning me work. But like I, at, a, at a given moment, I'm having conversations with Popular Science and, and Fast Company and GQ and a universe of magazines that are kind of unrelated, except that they are magazines that publish, you know, the work of what we call lifestyle consumer writers. You know people who know how to write for a mass audience, right? I mean Popular yeah. Science is a science magazine for a mass audience, Fast Company is a business magazine for the, a mass audience, Business Week. I may not know a lot about derivatives, but that doesn't mean I can't profile a hedge fund manager or um I went Business Week sent me to I went to Korea and China to write a piece about cloning. I, I'm not a geneticist, but if you're a good enough journalist and you know how to ask questions to people who do know what they're talking about, it's only your job to understand it well enough to interpret what they're saying and figure out one if it's bullshit and two if, in a way that you can then translate it to the people who are reading it, because the readers of Business Week are not geneticists either, or maybe some of them are, but they kind of want to know. Well, well, this is crazy. There's a company that's like cloning dogs and other animals. Maybe yeah.
3: mammoths someday. Yeah, I thought the science in that piece was was uh, was really well done. Thank you. And also like uh, that the guy that was written about, he was like the scandal guy who disappeared. Yes, and he was like he's he's ruined because he like made up essentially made up his research, and then he's like emerged as this uh, he's having having a a renaissance uh, dog cloning pet cloning guy. Um, Well, I want to I don't want to get into dogs yet because I'm going to talk about that in just a second. Before we do that, I want to talk about this elephant polo story just because that is my favorite story. uh, I think of your stories, and that was an outside piece, right? Yeah. That's How just... did that even <laughs> come about? You played, but I'll just frame it, you played polo on top of an elephant in like the world championships of elephant polo in India, uh, Nepal.
1: Nepal. that probably the apex of ridiculousness when it comes to stories that I have
3: done. But that's like a, that's a classic like adventure, like freelance writer adventure that is, you could not have in your life. In any other way, <laughs>
1: although that's a situation where even me, I'm a correspondent for outside, I have a long relationship with outside, but I feel like if I just pitched them like, "Hey, there's an elephant polo, world championship's happening, I should go playing it." They'd be like, "Ah it's quirky." But I, what happened is, a friend of mine was on a, some kind of like liquor press junket to Nepal. Shivas Regal has always sponsored the Elephant Polo. World Championship Makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Totally. Ridiculous people who drink expensive scotch go to things like this, right? And, And the people that play are like, you know, like minor royalty and like dudes from Dubai who run like contractor, you know, they're like security contractor companies. Like wealthy people who can do ridiculous things at their own expense. Well, anyway, my friend was on a junket and he was like watching elephant polo being played And the American ambassador was there, and they like struck up a conversation, and he said, why isn't there an American team? And the ambassador was like, that's a good question. You should go home and start one. So he did. He came back, and I I wish I could take more credit for it. He like put it together. There was a a travel publicist who we are both friends with who was able to secure a bunch of funding. So I actually was going to do that anyway, because it was just too ridiculous. He was like, do you want to play on my elephant polo team in the
3: World Championships? You were going to do it and not, not even write about it, or?
1: It's the kind of thing where you know you're going to write about it, yeah, but, yeah. but well, but th- so then I like took it to my outside editor and said, listen, I'm doing this thing anyway. It would be kind of funny, you know, should I write about it? And they were like, yeah, you, sh- you should.
3: Yeah, and it was paid for. But how did you deal, you dealt with the junket part of it by just writing that it? No, it actually it.
1: wasn't a junket. Oh, it wasn't? It, no, the, the, the travel publicist who became our manager, um, Melanie Brandman, who runs a big travel PR firm, um, actually put together sponsors so we had
3: sponsors we were sponsored by Continental Airlines and but then did they have to be like mentioned in the story? No
1: because th- they weren't sponsoring us because I was doing a story they were just they were just sponsoring the team the team to be participating in, in this glamorous event they felt Continental Airlines felt like their brand would be enhanced by a close association with the luster of elephant Polo. <laughs> And I mean, why wouldn't they It's think? clearly, it's, t- it's taken off. since I then. feel like the brand has really taken off since I wrote that but
3: story. But you, uh, we won't, I won't give away the ending because I think people should go read the story. It's fun. We'll link to it in the show notes. But also it was like, the things fell into place for you to write about it for the most part, like in terms of how the team did. But it also, it felt like, you did have to do a lot with a little in terms of like the sport is. It's actually just like a bullshit thing.
1: Oh, it's. I mean, it's it's ludicrous. It's not. Yeah, it's like a made up. It's not a sport. It's a made up sport for like rich bored people. I mean, actually, that's not totally fair. It was created by a family who runs some eco resorts in Nepal as a way to help promote elephant tourism. Oh, and they've well, done a lot fair. of good to promote the cause of elephants in Nepal and the the mahouts, which is what the elephant trainer drivers are called. Get involved, it, it, and it's like the money goes to charity, and it actually has a positive thing. On the other hand, the people who come and play in it are like ludicrous rich assholes. Like, so CBS this morning did a segment on us, and Bill Geist, who's amazing, did it, and we were like, we need to practice. We're the New York, we're the first American team. We're New York. We're gonna going back to cars. I had this idea. I'm like, well, how do we practice? Well, it's really hard to simulate an elephant without an elephant. But what if I get a bunch of Cadillac Escalades with sunroofs, and we'll all sit on the roof in the sunroof. That seems like about the height of an elephant, and we don't have the polo mallets that are long enough. So we'll go to a hardware store, and one guy's job was to get the like, plastic piping and to f- to fabricate like a six foot polo mallet. So it was like freezing cold, like November afternoon. We went out to Jacob Reese Park in Queens, which was the largest parking lot I could think of in the Rockaways. Like the only parking lot in New York big enough to drive Escalades to around.
3: Fake elephant polo practice.
1: Yeah, to to have like Escalades squaring off with people sitting on top of them with these giant mallets, like practicing. And CBS bill guys came out and filmed us, and I mean it was not it was it was ridiculous. I mean the whole thing was ridiculous. It's, what's even more ridiculous is that we did well. Yeah, that's. I mean, yeah. we we did not embarrass ourselves. It turns out if you're like a decent athlete, you can adapt to a lot of things, and you're playing against like fat guys who who drink scotch. You know? No one is an elite elephant polo player, right? So there are guys who come back again and again and get better, and we went back the next year and played again, and actually we didn't. We did
3: worse. But I have one more question in this vein, and then uh, and then I want to talk about books for a second. But you've you've done like pieces like this, which is not exactly like dangerous like it's a lark but like whatever he could have gotten hurt but it's you you did that you've done like snowboarding in iran where wh- one of the details of that story that i thought was like why did you do that it was like i smoke pot with three different two or three different like groups like you can get like imprisoned and like once you have had kids did your approach change to these assignments
1: it definitely changes the, t- the concept of time. If my wife is listening, she'll she'll be like, "I've heard you say this so many times." <laughs> but like, I will subject myself to like kind of ridiculous travel schedules in order to do things and still be like a decent father. You know, I mean, which there's a couple of things I could say about this. One is that, like, for instance, if it's a story like last, not this summer, last summer, I had two different stories that required me to go to Sweden in the summer. One of them I went, flew over, spent a day, flew back. I basically went there for, I don't know, 36
3: or 48 hours. It's like, like almost as much time on the plane.
1: Yeah, like just ridiculous. I was wiped out, it was crazy, and it wasn't because she asked me, like, this is not to say that like my wife is like, she's actually also a journalist, she works at People Magazine, really understanding and super supportive of everything. It. It's a pressure that I feel, it's not a pressure that she puts upon me. I just felt like I'm going there to do an interview. like. I can do that interview in one day. I don't need to stay an extra night just to, as a single person, I would have stretched that out over four or five days. In the in the magazine probably would have been, yeah, totally that's fine, you're going So it's absolutely changed the way. I've gone to LA and back in a day before. That said, there's some like when I went to do that cloning story in Asia, I was gone for eight days. And there are times where, if the story warrants, Afar sent me on this sailing cruise with my dad in, in Indonesia for two weeks. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's cr- two weeks is way beyond what I would typically do, but that was a chance to spend two weeks with my dad as an adult. Like, that's not something I thought I would get and I'll never get it again. So, and again, my wife was like, absolutely, you should do that. Like, they're going to pay to send you and your dad to Indonesia to sail around on a boat for two weeks. Like, you'd be crazy not to say yes right. to that. Like, that's
3: not like chasing Britney Spears around LA or no. Vegas or something for and, two weeks.
1: And that. I can imagine situations where, like, the right adventure story. It would totally be fine now would i like put myself in danger or go to a place where i thought like i could get arrested no i mean clearly i can't i mean my gut says yes because i would kind of want to but no i mean it's
3: good for the story smoking pot in iran is good for the story it's a good detail i mean
1: i would go back to iran i think i was maybe a little naive that was 2007 like Knowing what I now know about people who've gotten in trouble there, and ways I could have gotten in trouble—that like, whole thing—I'm not good at preparation. I'm always the guy running for the plane. Like I was in Baltimore last night; I was literally like the last guy on the Amtrak as it pulled out. <laughs> I got to the station. I there were no cabs. Like I'm constantly that guy. As much as I travel, I'm terrible about preparation. A funny story about Men's Journal. I, <laughs> when the Iraq War started, whatever year that was after September 11th, we invade the next year, 2001 was, or 2002. So, the Pentagon was like very upfront about the media, maybe because in retrospect they felt so bad about the the war built on lies that they were going to put journalists in every division. Like it was, was all about embedding. They trained yeah. everybody. Well, we had a slot at Men's Journal. We gave it to Hampton Sides. I don't think Hampton Hampton won't be mad for me telling the story because he wrote about it for the new yorker. Hampton went to the training where they made him put on the chem suit and he freaked out. He was like, "Fuck this. I'm not I'm not <laughs> I'm not going to go get gassed by nerve gas." So he backed out. They were they were like, "Okay, you can have your spot, but you have to fill it within 24 hours." So I raised my hand. I was like, "I'll I'll do it." And for whatever reason, they were like, "Okay, really, if you want it, you have until tomorrow to make this decision." So um, I went home Called my brother who was in the army. He told me some story about he hadn't seen any combat, but he was in Korea during the Cold War and how he like almost crapped his pants hearing artillery. And I called all these people. My dad, who was like really super supportive, my biggest fan, and who was like, "You should do it. It's a great opportunity." And I was like, the next week I was supposed to go on vacation with my girlfriend. We were going to go to Mexico. I, anyway I stayed up all night weighing 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 and I went in the next morning and I was like I, I just can't make the decision on this kind of notice I'm going to pass on so I passed on it huh. when I called my dad by the way he was like thank god he's like that was the worst advice I ever gave you I didn't sleep at all last night My Polly my stepmom was like why did you say that like he's like I'm so glad you didn't go <laughs> I would have been embedded with the um, first marine recon Evan Wright ended up with that group he wrote Generation Kill which went on to be like a big bestseller and a Successful HBO. This is like foreshadowing <laughs> for another story we're gonna deal with. I'm not saying that would have happened to me, but and I don't even know if I regret it. But that that's an adventure. That's a, a dangerous situation I passed up. Clearly, today I would not embed with like, you know, Restrepo.
3: Right. right. So before we get to the thing that I know you want, to, I want to talk about, uh, which you may or may not want to talk about. Let's talk about the book that you wrote, uh, which resonated with me deeply because I don't know if you know, but I. My family raised Dalmatians when I was a child and uh, showed them at dog shows.
1: Were you a junior handler?
3: I never was. My brother was. So your book is about dogs and dog shows. Um, actually, I think we may have re- been reporting at the same Westminster Dog Show one year.
1: Were you reporting there?
3: Yeah, I did a story for National Geographic where I, w- I went to the Westminster Dog Show and reported on it. Uh, it. did Not that much of it made it into the story, but it was 2010. Which I think, from reading your book, was like I would have been there. Yeah, 2010,
1: 2011
3: were the two Westminsters. I mean, we can't cover the whole book, but one thing that is kind of like you reference it in the at the beginning, and it was so interesting. Like following the trajectory of it is like, how do you pick a fucking dog to follow? Like you're picking a subject first of all that is not sentient. Like you cannot interview your main character which is like a dog named Jack. But also, like, how do you pick a dog that you're then going to follow for what seemed like years, like a very long period of time through, like, his pathway through, like, dog shows and trying to become a champion and grand champion It was and all a that.
1: year. Well, yeah, it's funny. I pitched this story to my agent long before we sold the book, and he was like, that's great. I was like, I'm gonna, I want to profile a show dog, and I want to spend, like, a year. He's like, great. You should do it. I can sell it. Go find a dog. So then that was several years. I, then I was kind of like, in you know, like what you're saying. I was like a paralysis. I'm like, whoa, wait a second. How do I, what? How am I going to choose? Like, there are 190 whatever breeds, and like each one, like, how do I, like, know which one is going to be successful? How do I know if it's going to be an interesting dog? Like, there's a handler, there's an owner. This is crazy. How I'm like, so I was like frozen for a couple of years. Like, this is a book I could probably do. And then. Actually, it was kind of another situation of necessity. It was really when, in the year after the recession, when the magazine industry cratered, I had more time than I'd had in a while, and I was like, okay, this is when I need to write my book, because I have time. Yeah. I didn't have kids at that point. Like, I need to do something good with this, because I was still working, but less. Everyone was working less. The only way I could make it work was to find a dog Like, I couldn't start with a puppy, because how do I know? Like, Every litter, even a litter from show dogs, you don't know. They might all wash out. None of them might be show dogs. I decided, like, I should find a dog that's kind of already on the circuit, doing pretty well, but interesting, and kind of doesn't matter. Like, of course, in my dreams, I want the dog that's going to go on to win Westminster. I want the Rudy dog, who's like an underdog is going to win Westminster. So, I just went out. I started writing to handlers in my area, in the Northeast, and just basically saying, here's who I am. I'm a journalist. I have this idea. Almost all of them ignored me. A couple of them wrote back. They're, they're super busy. Those people work crazy hard. This um, One of them, Heather Bremer, who was part of the couple that I ultimately followed, wrote me back. Initially like very hesitant, because she'd had some stalkers. There's like dog show handler stalkers. Mm-hmm. I think she was like, I'm very busy, call me. And it turns out when I called her back, she was like vetting me to make sure I wasn't a creep.
3: Yeah, are you part of the underworld of yeah, dog like, are you stalkers? you're just a weird stalker.
1: So then she was like, you should come out and meet us, see what we do. So I went to a dog show in, in uh, Westchester. Uh, and I just met them, and I looked at their dogs. They had a variety of dogs. And I knew that I'm like a big dog person, so I'm like, I don't want to follow a Pekingese, and I'm not really a poodle person. It should be like a oh, dog. You're like
3: a large dog person. A
1: dog that I would own, which is like maybe a Lab, maybe a Bernese Mountain Dog, something. And there was this Australian Shepherd at the show, and he was like a beautiful dog. He, he had a lot of personality. He's like kind of an electric personality, actually, which is funny to say about a dog. But he like literally was like vibrating on the table, and it turned out like one of the tensions in the story uh, in the book it was like a useful narrative element for me was that he was like a aesthetically perfect dog who when he was on was amazing but he was a little bit of a loose cannon he, had, he was like a live <laughs> yeah. wire who would like maybe jump up and like start humping a judge at some point so i didn't know that was going to be the case i just knew that he was look good he was interesting his the handlers were friendly and were going to give me access because that's important right like I, I always say, like, I give a lot of credit to the subjects of stories and especially books, because to to give a journalist permission to follow you around for a year with a notebook and a tape recorder, like that's an amazing amount of trust. I, I wouldn't want someone following me around. I would. There's no way. Yeah. Like, it just No. But no. But these people were super gracious. The owner of the dog was gracious. They kind of all tr- implicitly trusted me. But
3: also, if they if they had said like, ah, we're just not going to show this dog anymore." Then you'd be fucked
1: yeah i would then like the
3: book falls apart in the middle i yeah. mean there were
1: times it it worked out because she the owner was struggling with money whether it was worth it to keep showing him or not and i was trying not you know i was starting to feel like is is the pressure of me causing her to show her dog more than she wanted to because there's a journalist writing a book about you like you and you don't want to start to become that pressure on the story
3: right some heisenberg principle happening with the dog shows
1: in the end he he was very successful, but not tremendously successful. He almost won a couple of big shows. He had, a, you know, it wasn't outrageous that he could like win Best in Show a couple of times. He didn't quite, but, and it kind of didn't matter in the end because I've, I've, what I realized and what I've heard, I mean, in, in that, that situation, you want to write a book that the public likes, anyone who doesn't care about dog shows, but, but the real test of how, Good a job you've done is if the people from that world read it and say like this is fair. You know? Yeah, we've all seen Best in Show. It's amazing. It's funny. Real life is is very similar to Best in Show. One reason that movie's so funny is it's so accurate. And yeah, you'll hear that from dog show people. And and my challenge was like if I if I'm just out to make fun of people, it's very easy. Like, but that's not a book, right? That's maybe a magazine story in certain magazines. But like these people need to be empathetic. You need to want to root for them. Yeah, you're going to make fun of some of them, but they're going to say things that. To the average reader, are going to seem ridiculous, and you're going to laugh at them. But then they're going to read it and not think it's outrageous. Like that's doing my job well, I think. And yeah. I've heard from people in the show world that they, rec- it's the book that people recommend to each other still. You yeah, know? And, and I'm proud of that. And I think that's a good test of any store magazine story. Now it's kind of like there are certain subjects, and I'm sure you've run across them where you just know you could do like such a hit job on them, or like you get.
3: I feel like one of the whole points of a like a deep subculture story like that is that if it if it comes off, you don't read it thinking like, look at these people, they're insane. Like, why are they so obsessed with dogs? You you actually come out of it thinking, I'm obsessed about something else in that same way. It's totally. Like, you, you relate to the the way they connect with their dogs. It sounds crazy to someone who doesn't like dogs, but the whole idea is like you have that with something you just it's not dogs.
1: There was an anecdote I I like to tell in interviews when I was doing interviews for that book, which was, I was in the middle of reporting that and I would come home and tell my wife like stories of these crazy people and all, aren't they so funny? They're so obsessed with dogs. And I'm a big sports fan. And my, one of my teams is I grew up in West Virginia, West Virginia university, basketball and football. And that happened to be the year that West Virginia went to the final four for the only time in my life. And in the grade eight, literally that the day that they played Kentucky Kentucky was ranked number 1 in the country and heavily favored West Virginia was an underdog i went to a dog show it was in edison i think that day and i came home like rushed home in time to watch this game no one expected west virginia to win well they did they won it was an upset and like there was one point late in that game where I was, like, on the floor with, like, a pillow over my head, like, screaming at the television, acting like a fucking lunatic. And, like, I just, like, had a moment where I, like, stepped out of myself. And I'm like, if dog show people could see me right now, like, they'd be like, what is wrong with you? Like, these are a bunch of people playing a game. You don't know these people. They're Yeah, at least we love
3: these dogs. We know them.
1: Yeah, at least these are, like, our dogs. Like, who do you know from, like, wearing these uniforms that happen to be from a town that you once lived in? Like, who's the correct? crazy person here. So that was a very useful moment of perspective for me, where I was like, okay, I get it. Like Any subculture looks ridiculous, and a crazy sports fan is one of the I mean, there are a lot of us. Like, yeah. The only reason it's not out, more outrageous to be an obsessed sports fan is because there's so many of
3: us. So you, your, your, your book came out, and, uh, and then even in your bio on your website, it says, like, I'm looking for a new book idea. Please help me. Send me an email. Oh, is this, the, are we going into the therapy portion? Well, I'm interested in, uh, well, that you were looking for a new book idea. You're doing this piece for us, which we should describe. It's a kind of, it's a very like the atavist type of piece. Like it's a thing that happened in the past that uh, a lot of people forgot about. And uh, I don't actually remember how you found out about it.
1: But it kind of relates to the story that you're leading up to, the, to the, the book thing. At some point many months ago, I fell into like a bank robbery rabbit hole one day and I ended up on the FBI's website just reading about old cases. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the sort of bigger picture was I was thinking maybe there was like a a bank robbery book to be done in the vein of Brendan Kerner's hijacking book. Like maybe kind of a collection of stories about, it's like the one crime that's, it's like seems larger than life and sanitized in a way that they all become folk heroes. Uh, so I just started reading about bank robberies, and I found this story of this Canadian gang who apparently were very famous at one point, especially in Canada, but I'd never heard of them, and I mentioned them to everyone. They were called the Stopwatch Gang. And I started reading about them. I was like, this is a great story. And even if it was I mean, and I'm sure this has happened with other his stories where it was famous at one time. A lot of people from that era might know about it, but yeah. after a certain point, nobody knows about it. And in the yeah. states, you know, one of these characters who becomes the narrator of my story is still pretty well known in Canada, especially among people over forty, probably. But Americans don't know anything about him. I, I had not heard of it when you. It's one of those cases me. where you think like, "Oh, Canada is just like America; like they have all the same culture." But then you realize, in certain cases, it's not at all like America. They have a whole like. Like, there are celebrities there that you've never heard of. I've Criminal never heard celebrities. Of. There are criminal celebrities who are household names who <laughs> we've never heard of. And you will, find, you will hear about them in, in my story. <laughs> it was a case of, like, just spending a day reading about characters. And these guys just stood out to me.
3: So then you started working on the story for us, which is, like, a perfect story for us. But how did you get access to the guy? How did you find—so there's one guy. There's three bank robbers. One of them's dead. One of them's—no one knows what happened to him. The other one is like getting out of prison, halfway house situation. But how did you go about like reporting that out?
1: I mean, part of the story is that he at one point redeemed himself and became a fairly known writer in Canada. Um, I just, so I wrote to his publisher and just said, is there any way you could get me in touch with him? I knew he was on the verge of getting out of prison. I actually didn't hear back from them. I think I emailed his publisher, didn't hear back. But then out of the blue, I got an email from him saying, I heard you were looking for me. Almost like that terse i think Hmm. so then i wrote him back we had like a bit of a back and forth we did this kind of dance of like i don't really feel like there's much i have to say you know he'll he's told his story a million times he's written a couple books he's been up and down but then i just kind of like talked to him more and more and we hit it either hit it off or he it came to a point i mean it's clear that he likes to talk he's a very thoughtful smart guy he feels like even though he's told his story a million times, that he hasn't always told it the right way. He's kind of late in life and feels like he wants to set the record straight on some things. He had a partner, the, the one who's died, who ended up being the most famous of the three of them, a real folk hero in Canada, and I think maybe feels a little like his star was eclipsed a little bit by Patti Mitchell and was ready to... to Tell a bigger, wider, more well rounded version of that story. You have
3: to commit some serious robberies to feel like like your literary star is eclipsed by like your fellow robber who became more fam- <laughs> famous right. than you. But they did. They committed an incredible number of robberies. They did. They
1: were very successful bank robberies. I mean, no one, you can't quantify these things. Well, I guess you can by amount stolen, and, and we don't really know exactly, but they were very successful. I mean,
3: dozens, 50, 100. We're not sure how many, but they don't even know. So, uh, I would encourage everyone to go read the story for obvious reasons. But I'm also interested in, and we've talked about this uh, previously, that you had another story that spun out of the story in some way. Yeah.
1: So, as you noted, I've I been looking for a book since Show Dog. And that was when did that come out? Two, 2012. 2012. But I finished writing it in 2011. I kind of always assumed I would immediately go into something else because I liked writing and re- reporting a book and like to, to bring my dad up again. One of the questions my dad never stops asking me, like not every time we talk, but almost like what's your next book going to be? I've been thinking about this. I got some ideas. What's your next book going to (laughs) be like for years now? So and I it's not that that's the pressure that I felt. It's like I knew it had to be really different than show dog. I didn't want to do another year in the life story. I wasn't going to do another dog thing. It wasn't going to be you could just become the dog guy. I could become the dog guy. I could do another like embedding for a year. I don't want to be the year in the life guy, you know, I don't want to do cat shows. You know, people are like, you should do cat shows. You,
3: should, <laughs> you cannot you should, make a book out of cat you should shows. Do, there's no way there's I've been to a cat show. Fancy you cannot chickens. Make a book out
1: of it. You should do yeah, the cow sh- I mean, I get emails and suggestions like that, right? But uh, as you can see from the kind of stories I do, like I, I'm really trying hard not to be that guy of any kind. Like right. so anyway, my my pressure that I feel internally was like the next book's gotta be so different. It's gotta be something completely different. Like just so people will think this guy could do anything, you know. Mm-hmm. I just want to be a good journalist who writes interesting books. So, while reporting the Stopwatch Gang, on many days I like would trip back down into that same rabbit hole, and I would like the FBI. There's like a million amazing stories in the FBI archives of just like even on their website, they've got sections of like cases, like abstracts, not necessarily a lot of information, but teasers. And then you can go to Wikipedia, and so I found, oh man. This... <laughs> Jesus, do you have the tissues? (laughs) So I found this story. There was a period in the 1920s where um, early in the FBI's founding, it was just being founded, actually. Hoover was an associate director who was in his 20s. Um, The West was still being founded. If you can believe it, that was actually one of the things that surprised me. In the 20s, the West was still coming together. And in the prairie, the Indian nation, the Osage Indian nation became the first tribe to acquire their own land and that it wasn't given to them by the government it was actually acquired through a series of injustices done by the United States they were given the money to purchase their own land and they bought this land that was like pathetically small and much compared to what their territory wants it's like every, you know it's like tragic in a way however it, oil was struck on this land and they became overnight the wealthiest population per capita in the world they were like the Qataris or something like a small population like Fewer than 3,000 of them, fabulously wealthy, crazy stories break out. Reporters go and write these, like, really insulting stories about how these, like, Native Americans don't know how to, like, fold their sheets. and they, like, uh, yeah, You know, yeah. they, like, buy these expensive cars and they drive them into the ditch and abandon them. Like, as you can imagine, what happens is that... White opportunists movements are taking advantage of them, of course, like building them houses they don't need and selling them shit they don't need and selling them cars and marble counters and and you know, the next natural evolution is criminals and a conspiracy broke out in which a series of um murders, suspicious deaths occurred. And the case came to the attention of the F the nascent FBI, then called the Bureau of Investigation. And uh Hoover was one of the first people associated with this case decided to send agents undercover for the first time in the history of the FBI into Indian territory to break this conspiracy case. Who's killing these Indians? Turned out it was a, a basically a local mob boss who had been ordering these murders in order to accumulate mineral rights, their oil rights, to enrich himself, basically. Mm-hmm. So it's an amazing like murder mystery story with a conspiracy that happens to be set with the setting of the foundation of the FBI. Like Great narrative with a... Huge and important context, right? So yeah, I mean, I it. this it's, was like one afternoon. I was just like, "Oh my god, that's it!" You can never guarantee a bestseller, but I was like, "This just feels like the kind of thing that has a chance to spark." You can only hope that your book has a chance. I mean, I thought that was Show Dog and it did well, but it didn't do great. I thought like maybe this is the kind of book, that, but this one is like it's it's about the Wild West. It's about the FBI. It's a murder story. Like there's going to be a big movie about it. This is fucking. I'm going to be this is this is my <laughs> moment. <sighs> So we send the proposal out. I'm excited. He forwards me a couple responses. They're really enthusiastic. The next day, my phone rings. It's him. He's like, I don't have good news. He's like, I just got a call from the head of double the head editor Doubleday. David Grant has been working on this book quietly for two years. <laughs> I mean, I you just I think I like literally fell out of my chair. Because I admire David Grant. I th- he's one of the best at this thing. Like I read his stories voraciously. I know what David Grant is doing. What the fuck? He's been doing this... Qu- like How has he been doing this in secret? This thing that I found deep in the FBI files, which was at one point a big story, but then kind of fell out. It's kind of like Stopwatch or anything else. In the 20s and even up into the 40s, Hoover thought this is part of his legacy like I launched the first undercover investigation I broke this case it was Indians no one was paying attention to Indians but then like prohibition happened and mobsters came around it just got forgotten right there had been a few small books no big book there's a book in the 90s where it was like a thread but there'd been some novels anyway it was very clear to me that it had been for I like did all that research I'm like I just felt like I was fully in the clear like of all the things that could happen like you never know. Maybe publishers will be like, we've published too many Indian... I mean, I would have been bummed, but I guess I could have accepted I didn't think that would happen, but this was the thing. I was like, what?
3: That's out of nowhere. David
1: grand, like, What are the chances? What are, what are the f- fucking chances? What? And he didn't write a New Yorker story about it? Like, how is that possible? So he like, yeah, they didn't ever release it. They didn't... He's like, they were very nice. They said we didn't release
3: it. Like they didn't publicize that they had done the deal.
1: Uh, yeah, usually when there's a... A deal, Publishers Weekly prints a thing, like David, yeah. Grand, David Grand sells a book about the Osage Indian murders to Doubleday in a large deal. You know, his agent represents so-and-so. They didn't do that. So the next, no, it was the night of the conversation when my agent called me, the deal went out. To, he he forwarded it to me. He's like, this just, this just came out. And it was the blurb from Publishers Weekly. So they, clearly, he and his agent and the publisher decided to release it. I guess as a bit of a blocking move, in case some publishing house decided to buy my proposal anyway and say like, let's race this book. That would be crazy, and I wouldn't do it because one, I know he's going to do an amazing job. He had a
3: two-year head start. Like, well, yeah, I mean, maybe if like that one just sold and yours just sold, you could be like, well, and hey, if, it we'll both him, do if, it.
1: if it hadn't been him, if it hadn't been if it had been some guy who I don't know, or like some professor at Oklahoma State, or right, right, right. even more of a peer, but a guy who has like written a huge bestseller who writes these kind of stories all the time and does an amazing job, like, why would I, ra- I'm not going to raise him, but I still, that's why they did it. The next day, we just retract. you know, we retracted the proposal, and and I went into a shell and drank for six days, and I mean, it's hard for a lot of reasons, it's hard because I'd put a lot of pressure on myself to find a book, and I, I've rejected a million things, and I, you know, I get suggestions from friends and family members, and nothing felt right, and it was just a matter, it was just like, I just knew it, it just, on top of everything else, with like my dad was a historian, so he's probably more crust than I am right now because he's ret- he recently retired and is kind of driving my stepmom crazy, fumbling around the house, thinking of something to do. Like he was like following, he was like, "I'm going to be your research assistant and I'm going to go like to the archives and like he was going to work for free for me, which would actually be amazing. So now I'm like, I need to find another history book because I have a free research assistant who actually has a lot of knowledge and expertise in doing research, but he's just like super bummed. But you but you can. I
3: can. There's there are so many of these stories. This is where I am. I'm like trying not to be completely gutted by that <laughs> experience. I think you're coming out of it. I think you're coming out of it. I think you're you're gonna reach a point where you look back and wish that you you're glad that you didn't do that book. And you know who owes me a blurb? David Grant. David Grant <laughs> also may or may not be like comforting. David Grant, nicest man. Like, I know. I, like I said, I can't. Re- I mean, not genuinely like, like Menchi person.
1: Yeah, not, I have absolutely no <laughs> ill will. And, and like, I'm excited for his book because he's one of the best. He should be tweeting about I his think book the lesson here is
3: like, people should be more of a bragger, Like, David Graham's like, not caught up with like, he's just tweeting about like interesting stuff. He's not bragging he's about himself like, like everyone else. Knicks. Why is he not tweeting about the Osage? We were to take that up with him. We'll do the session in which the, all three of us you are can, there.
1: And we'll hug in the end. <laughs>
3: all right for now I believe that we're out of beer at least I am I am too all right so we're gonna call it thanks for coming in Josh thanks for the therapy session man
1: (laughs) it's gonna be okay
3: that's it for this week's long form podcast thanks for listening thanks to Josh Dean for coming in normally I only see him to watch soccer games uh, but we talk about the same shit uh, thanks, Josh. And you can also check out his story for the Atavist at atavist.com. You can download our app and you can obtain it there as well. Thanks to my co hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, and Jenna Weiss-Berman, our fantastic editor, as well as Rachel Mabe, our intern. We will see you next week.